0: Morning, once again. We're we're going to be continuing our study in Genesis, the story of Abraham. Um, and as we continue our study in Abraham, um, I think it's an important reminder to think about what what Genesis is about. It's Genesis, so beginnings. Uh, it's a story of of the history of all things in many ways. The history of creation and then the history of people, and particularly the history of God's people. But it's a story of beginnings. I remember I was a curious child. I'm still a pretty curious person, but I had this, and I always asked questions about the origins of this, that, or, you know, how did that begin, or this. And finally, my dad just got me this book. It was like, called I forget the, the author, but it was, I want to say Panini, but that's, no, that's a bread or a sandwich. But it was something like that is like Panini's Origin of Beginnings or something like that. I can't remember. It's been a long time. But it's this big tones. It's like how everything got its start. Well, Genesis, the book of Genesis is a bit like that. And it's particularly tracing the beginnings of God's people, starting with the chosen seed of the woman. But throughout the book, we also see the origins of peoples that are outside the covenant community. So if you go back to the beginning, you'll remember there was the line of Cain. We looked at that line. As, and it was put in juxtaposition to the line of Seth that went on to Noah. First. So Cain to Lamech, Seth to Noah. And then after Noah, you had three sons. You had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we looked at a little bit at, at the table of nations of Japheth and Ham, and then focused in on Shem, the seed of promise. We come to Terah. Terah, of course, is the father of Abraham. But uh, we look at the sort of family of Terah, and we look at other people within that family. Particularly, we look at Lot. So we have Abraham, this person of promise, and then we look at Lot. And now we can look at this: these two persons. We look at Isaac and Ishmael, and later on it will be Jacob and Esau. The we'll look at the, the seed of promise. And those that are not part of that covenant family, and yet the Lord continues to sort of draw out the beginnings of those peoples. On the one hand, it's meant to show us God's particular choosing is taking a people for Himself. But on the other hand, it also shows God's general care for humanity, how He shines His sun. On the wicked and the righteous. That he is a God who is merciful and cares uh, for the world. And in our story today, we get an intimate picture into that divine mercy that extends to all peoples. We see it particularly in the life of Isaac and his care for Isaac in the seed of promise. But we also see it in his care for Ishmael for Hagar. So with that, let's turn to our text we're going to be reading reading from uh, Genesis chapter 21. And we're going to be reading from verse 8 down to 21. So Genesis chapter 21 verses 8 to 21. This is God's word. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that I, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had, bo- uh, whom she had born to Abraham, um, laughing. So she said to Abraham, "Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac." The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, "Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman." Whatever Sarah says to you do what she tells you for though Isaac shall shall your offspring through, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named and I will make a, a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Sheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy. And he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took the wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word this morning. We we sometimes come to Your Word and we wrestle with it. Um, And so we ask today as we wrestle with Your Word, as I proclaim this good news, that You would reveal to us afresh the the mercies that flow from You, from Your Son, our Lord and Savior. Help me. My weakness, forgive my sin. We ask this, name. Jesus. Yesterday evening, uh, we had we had time to ourselves as a family. It doesn't always happen, and uh, we found ourselves for the better part of two hours or more just looking at slides. You know, slides. That's what's important. Of um, you know, online on the computer looking at pictures, family photos uh, from, from, all, from all of our family, from my family and its past, from Aaron's family and, and its past. And we did it for two hours in, in our own intimate personal family. And it was such a joy thinking about all the persons and people, people that have already gone to be with the Lord, people we never knew even uh, in these pictures that lived before our time. And, and as I was sitting there and I was watching and, and reflecting not only on my children and as babies and as Aaron and I as young adults like children when we first had children and then looking back in time over the, over the, the, the great, great history of our families I couldn't help but also think about all the brokenness. as faces would pop up and I would breathe over wherever they were Think about my own sin. We think about how our sins are passed from generation to generation. So mixed with all this joy and delight and like going through family photos, is this sadness. And I think if I was to ask any of you about your families, it would be a similar story. You would be able to say joy, all the delights of members of your family, and you would also we, some of the brokenness, not only in your family, but in your own life, in the life of your children. There's a certain messiness to sin. You know, it doesn't just it doesn't just affect us, does it? But it bleeds out. It, it corrupts. It degrades. Not just our life, not just the life of our children, but the life of the generations. Causes us to grieve. But one of the, the, the hymns we just sang, one of the songs we just sang, is such an important reminder, it became the theme of this sermon, Though our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. And that's what I want us to look at today. Even as we consider generations here in Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, and we think about all the the implications of sin, and we think of all the brokenness and degradation that that, that sin causes, and the, just the mess of it. I want us to think about God's mercy, God's mercy, which is more. So, with that, there's just three points: real basic, the messiness of our sin, the faithfulness of our God, and the tender mercy. So the messiness of sin and then the faithfulness and tender mercy of our God. The first point, the messiness of sin, is—it's almost not even necessary to preach it because you all know it so well in your own lives. You know how it unfolds, but here we see it um, sort of coming out. We are at the height of God's promised uh, blessing coming true in the life of Abraham. He and Sarah have just given birth to Isaac, to laughter. God, in his humorous way, has brought forth life from the dead, so to speak. Here, Abraham and Sarah are in their old age, and they have given birth to a son, Isaac. Their sorrow had turned into laughter. And now the child was just a little older. We're told here in we, we just last week we looked at the birth of Isaac, but now we're told that he's a little older, that he has weaned. And this was a big moment in the life of the child. Uh, you can think about it um, this way: you know, um, when uh, you have an infant, they're very vulnerable. When we were looking at those pictures and we were looking at uh, each one of them, you know, we call them peanut or just little these little creatures that you know. We can kind of see their faces reflected now, but, you know, they look a little different. (laughs) Beautiful, but very, very susceptible to all sorts of things. They're vulnerable children. And if, if our children are vulnerable in this modern age, how much more so for a child living in a nomadic tent around 2000 B.C. in the desert of the Negev? How much more vulnerable is that child? And so, this was a special moment in the life of Isaac. He's been weaned, he's about three years old-ish. They nursed a little longer than we probably do today. And so, this is momentous. and they throw a party. You have to wonder for just a minute if Hagar wasn't hoping that something might happen to that child. Now, now I, we don't read that in the text. This is conjecture. But here she has a son, and she desperately wants her son to be prominent. After all, that was the very purpose of all the mess of that sin. And here is Ishmael. You've got to wonder, just for a minute, that, that you know, things can happen in the first three years of the child's life. But did isn't. And they're celebrating the, the, the health and well-being of this child. There's laughter in the house. And yet there's some laughter that's different than other laughter. And Sarah hears the laughter of Ishmael, and, and it's the same word, but it can be translated in different ways. And we've already seen this because you'll remember that Abraham and Sarah laughed because they were in disbelief. They didn't believe that God would could possibly bring about this miraculous birth. And so it is here, we have another form of laughter, almost like a mocking laughter. Here's Ishmael. He is maybe about... You know he's a middle school boy let's just put it he's on. a middle school boy enough said um, but he is looking down, on his <laughs> down and he laughs maybe he's making fun of isaac in some way we don't know maybe isaac had a big nose. i don't know we don't have any information but maybe, and I think this is more likely, maybe he's laughing because he thinks that despite Isaac's life, that because he is older, because Abraham loves him, that he will, in fact, gain at least a portion of the inheritance. Ha, who do you think you are? I'm the big brother. I'm the oldest. Your dad loves me. We don't know. It's still a three-year-old this 13, 12, 13-year-old. We don't know exactly what the laughter was. But Sarah heard it, and Sarah was deeply upset. Deeply upset. She hears it. She is irate. She goes to Abraham, and she says, cast out this slave woman with her son. I'd just like you to notice, she doesn't name them. She doesn't give them that dignity to say, you know, Hagar or Ishmael. She says, cast out that slavery for her son. There's deep resentment, deep pain in Sarah's life, deep bitterness that these two live in her house that threaten this promised child's inheritance. The text also goes on to say that Abraham was very displeased with Sarah uh, from wanting to do this. And, and I'm afraid that the translation doesn't quite do justice to the way Abraham felt. You know, I'm very displeased with you, Sarah. Um, That isn't really the sense of it. Um, That sounds like a mild-mannered response, but in fact, when we see this kind of language of displeasure throughout Scripture, it's very strong. In fact, when God talks about being displeased with God's people, He often breaks out in wrath, bringing about death. Abraham was upset. This is marital strife. It is a a division. No way was Abraham kicking Hagar out. He loved Ishmael. And after all, remember, Sarah had already tried this once. She had driven Hagar and the child out way back at the very beginning when Ishmael was born because she was beating and abusing Hagar. But the Lord met Ishmael and Hagar in the wilderness once before and said, come back into Abraham's house. And so Abraham's thinking, yeah, she's not leaving. This is the messiness of sin. This is like almost Jerry Springer level for those of you who are a certain age. Before we turn to the rest of the story, we can't help but feel that effect of the sin of Abraham and Sarah in the text. And, and, you know, to a more minor degree, maybe of Ishmael and Hagar, I I don't put it on them, but they feel the effects of sin in their own life. The sin of Abraham and Sarah. It's hard to imagine this, but just imagine if you will. Just imagine. What if Abraham and Sarah never sinned against Abraham. In think about the rest of human history. If Ishmael is the father of, you know, the Arab people, imagine if they hadn't sinned. I think sometimes we forget this reality that our sin has drastic implications, not just for us. But for the world we live in and for the family that we're a part of and for the people that we're connected to and the communities that we live in, our sin is like it's like a radioactive material that just eats away at life. And it's particularly hurtful for those closest to us, our family and our friends. And those consequences can be long lasting, even Generational. Scripture is rife with the sins of the fathers being passed down from generation to generation. We'll see that with Abraham and Isaac. We'll see that with David and his sons. You'll see it with Samuel and his sons. You go through all of Scripture and you'll see that pattern. And you know the pattern in your own heart, and heart. You know, you know, you said as a, as a young person, you said, I'm never gonna do it. My dad did. I'm never gonna do it, my mom. All of a sudden, your spouse is like, why are you doing that? And you're like, oh. And then when you see a with our kids, it's, it's a Generation. In this small story, we see Ishmael's resentment towards Isaac and his mocking laugh. We see Sarah's fear and anger and jealousy that this woman and her child are living in her home and threaten her child's inheritance. We see Abraham's conflicted allegiance since he now has, in essence, two wives, two sons from those different wives vying for position. And we see, most sadly, the devastation of that sin on the life of Hagar and Ishmael as they are now passed out for a second. One thing we hate to do is to consider the consequences of our sin. We especially don't think about it in the moment of our sin. We push it as far away from our mind as we can. We don't want to think about the consequences. We just want to do the thing that we want to do. But even after the fact, we have trouble admitting that the mess we find ourselves in is often our fault. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden and we try to shift the blame. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. It wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. You know, we don't want to deal with the consequences. Or, or sometimes we'll look for other explanations for our sin. Uh, or, or we'll outright deny our culpability. And some people will even disasso- disassociate themselves. They'll say, that really wasn't me that did it. It was something in me. It wasn't me. Mm-hmm. No, it was Yes. Or worse Sometimes we justify our sin. We don't like the outcome, so we'll just call the outcome good. And if we do that, then we are happy to do the sin. And we call good evil and evil good. Friends, we can't be blind to our sin and to the mess that it creates. Don't shift the blame. Don't minimize. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try and pretend that the mess is not mess or that sin is not sin. See it for what it is. Recognize its effect on your life, on the lives of those around you. Once you do this, once you start to see it, once it becomes full orb, you can be crushed by that overwhelming sense of guilt and, and despair. And at that moment is when in your tears and in your sorrow you're to turn from it and to trust in the Lord in hope. And we can do that because He is faithful and full. Our God is faithful and full of mercy. Remember, though our sins, they are men. What is mercy? This is where I want to turn. Looking at the faithfulness of God and the mercy of God. We will take these in turn, faithfulness, then mercy. The faithfulness of God. God enters into the mess of the family once again. Uh, Here were Abraham and Sarah in the midst of an intense marital dispute. He enters in, but I think he enters in in a particularly um, unexpected way. And at first, it it may feel a little troubling to you how how the Lord responds in this moment. Um, God says to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave work. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham is supposed to just cast out Hagar and Ishmael Again? Hadn't the Lord sent them back to him from the wilderness? Hadn't he brought them back into the family, and now God is saying, "Do whatever Sarah says." Wasn't she the one that beat Hagar? What, Lord, what are you saying here? What are you saying? Sarah had said, "Cast them out." You can think of Abraham thinking, "Well, where am I going to cast them into? Into the wilderness? Into the desert?" It's not like they could easily, as a slave woman and a child, walk through a desert back to Egypt. That's, that's no easy thing. That's no easy path. After all, she is a foreign slave here in this land. She has a child. Who's going to take her in? It's a little bit hard to see God's faithfulness and mercy from just a cursory reading of the text. It doesn't feel like that. It doesn't have that feel when you read it. But but I think we need to read carefully. First, we have to ask the question, why does God tell Abraham to listen to Sarah and then to send him away? We have to understand that, why? That, that'll help us to see God's faithfulness in this situation. First, we have to understand that although Sarah sins in her fear, she certainly does, she's not wrong to be concerned about the potential rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael. In the ancient world, there were actually legal grounds for the son of a slave by the master to get the inheritance. So there was legal grounds that Ishmael could stand on in that day and in that society that would say, I deserve the inheritance. Not only that, but we know Abraham cared for Ishmael. In fact, way back when God was promising Isaac, Abraham said, what about Ishmael? So, so he had vested interest, and this was his child, his son, his oldest, his first. Abraham was also very displeased when Sarah said this. So there's clear affection, clear affinity to Ishmael and to Hagar, and so I think Sarah's concerns were somewhat valid. She had somewhat, even though she was sinning in all of this, she had somewhat legitimacy in her concerns. And Sarah is trying to protect the seed of promise, and so is God. God, in His faithfulness, reiterates to Abraham that Isaac alone is the promised seed. He says, "Through him shall your offspring be named." So, what is the Lord doing? He is protecting, preserving, and providing for this heir by saying. I'll care for Hagar and Ishmael. That's 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 on me. But this family is that promised family. He's also keeping Abraham from compounding his sin but by trying to go it alone, by trying to you go through that that one Ishmael we read earlier in Galatians. And I'm not going to go into if you want a little little more detail on Galatians, you can go back. To our series on Galatians and, and learn more about that allegorical interpretation that, that Paul uses to, to say that, that Isaac represents you know, the promise of grace through grace and Ishmael the law and the, the two seeds. You can look at that. But, but at the very least, um, I think what we can gather from that text that we read earlier in the sermon is that to go through Ishmael was to take matters into his own hands. That that was something that Abraham was in danger of doing. But the Lord protects him from it. He says, "Cast out the woman." But there's a second thing. Not only do we see God's faithfulness in preserving the seed Isaac that He had miraculously brought forth from the womb of Sarah. There there is this. There is something else here, which is God's faithfulness not only to Abraham and. Mm-hmm. But to Hagar Did you catch it? He reiterates to Abraham the promise that he gave way back in, in when Ishmael was born and he was, he was making covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, he says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. And will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. Go back to chapter 16 and 17. You can read the promise that's given to Israel. But again here in chapter 21 he says it this way. He says, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. God has been faithful to his promises. I want to stop here. And consider this thought, this basic, fundamental thought, that God is faithful. I think those words roll pretty easily off our tongues as Christians. And yet it's one of the hardest things that we struggle with. It's easy to say, I know God is faithful. God's word tells me he's faithful. And then in the next breath, go and do something that belies what we truly believe. That we don't trust his feelings. And we don't trust his father. And we don't trust his father. Last night as we were looking through those family photos, there was this one old photo of Aaron's grandpa holding Aaron's mother. Right? So, if you can follow this for a second, it was Aaron's grandfather holding Aaron's mother in, in, her arms, in his arms. Next to him on his right was his own mother, And on his left was his grandmother. A pretty pretty awesome picture, right? Four generations. We calculated that Aaron's great-great-grandmother, the one on the left in the photo, was born sometime around 1880 or so. Who knows, we're just doing kind of rough estimate calculations. And so here are my children, right? My children, the next generation, actually two generations down from that, sitting next to their mother, seeing a picture of their grandmother as a little child with their great-grandfather holding their grandmother and their great-great-grandmother and their great-great-great-grandmother. It was a a special moment last night to see all of that. It was amazing to consider. And it got me thinking on two fronts. First, how connected we are uh, to our families. It's cool to see all those generations, but the next thing that struck me was how forgetful we are we couldn't even come up with names. We just—we didn't even know for sure if they were. We had to contact Aaron's mom to get details on the picture because we didn't know the names. We didn't understand who they were. We knew almost nothing about them and the lives of these women in the picture. Yet, as I think about it, the lives of the the lives of those women deeply impacted our life. In fact, we don't exist apart from them, right? wild to think about. But beyond that, their choices, both good and ill, carry through the generations. The messes they created bled into their children and their children's children down into my children through me. And, and and I don't, you guys know this as a fact, I think. There are a lot of dollars spent in therapist's office unraveling the mess that our parents and grandparents uh, passed on to us that our children will also spend. Right? That's probably the majority of money spent on just figuring out how our parents messed us up. I mean, I think that's pretty much how it works. Right? But here's the amazing thing. This is the amazing thing. Despite our sin, despite the way we make a royal mess of our lives and the lives of those around us, Scripture tells us that the Lord is faithful to a thousand generations. Put put your... Fix your mind around this. He says this in Exodus chapter 34. He says, The Lord, the Lord. That he's declaring his name to Moses. This is this is his declaration of who he, who he is in, in, in his name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. What I found really interesting about the declaration, that's a, that's a, a mountaintop text in, in the book of Exodus. But what I find really interesting in that judgment at the end, he says that he will, he will not clear the guilty of the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, it doesn't even come close to comparing to the steadfast love that he shows to a thousand generations. Who is a God like this? What does this mean for us? That's really basic. We can trust him. We can trust him. See, the reason we struggle... To believe he is faithful is because we are often blinded. We have blinders on to the difficulty. I said this earlier uh, in the sermon series. I said previously that there there is this inscrutable providence, a providence that we can't make sense of. That doesn't that doesn't make sense to us. And sometimes it makes us wonder: Is God going to keep his promises? Some of you are asking that question today. Is God faithful? Well was built into his name. It's part of his name. Faithful. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. He is faithful to the end. To a thousand generations. What does this mean for us? I think at at the very outside, you can stop trying to take matters into your own hands. Despite how you might feel, Guess what? God knows best for you. And he will faithfully care for you far better than you are able to care for yourself. I don't have to prove that. I don't. You you look at When you take matters into your own hands and you say, well, God seems to be pointing me in this way, but that seems like a a cliff I don't want to go over. I'm going to go this way. How does that work for Jonah? How does that work for you? You know the mess that you do when you take matters into your own. I know the mess that I agree. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will no direct your path. For our God is a faithful God. The Apostle Paul says it this way, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also give us freely all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What He promises, He does. Do you believe Him? What He promises, He does. As we move on to the next point, there is something closely associated with faithfulness, and it's his mercy. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And the story ends in a very poignant picture of God's tender mercy. At first blush, saying the Lord saying, do whatever Sarah tells you to do seems exceedingly unmerciful. Yet it is mercy. First, it's a mercy to Sarah. She wasn't deserving of it. There was no deserving. Sarah was as culpable as Abraham in this mess. And yet, God was merciful to her. God saw her pain, her longing for her son. He met her and he provided this son of promise in her old age. And therefore, by removing Hagar and Ishmael, God is recognizing the real potential, the more heartache and conflict that she states. So, God is merciful. Listening to Sarah's cries, no matter how laced with selfishness and sin they were, God poured out His mercy. And secondly, there's mercy to Hagar and Ishmael. And this is where the text kind of lands at the end, kind of the highest point. And there's a different nature here, right? Sarah gets to enjoy blessing within the house of Abraham and all that that entails. And, and Hagar. And Ishmael had to go out into the wilderness, out to to, to the question of will I live? Will I survive? Right. They're not of the same nature. After all, Isaac is not the seed, of, or Isaac is the seed of promise and not Ishmael. Nevertheless, God shows mercy. There would have been inevitable conflict in that household. There already was conflict in that household. And while it was dangerous and scary to leave, it was ultimately for her good too. She couldn't see it, of course, as she's wandering in the, in the Negev as she is there in Beersheba in this wilderness land as she is dying of thirst. She can't see God's goodness and God's provision. But it was for her good, for But maybe most significantly it was how the Lord met her. Love it. This picture is... Tender mercy. The picture's so vivid. They're wandering in the wilderness. Her son is obviously dying of thirst, can no longer walk. She lays him down under a bush. And she can't bear, she can't bear to be there close to him and watch him die and to hear his cries. And so she steps away about a bow's distance. I don't know what distance that is. Close enough probably for her to get a little glimpse, but not to be intimately watching that suffering she goes off in that distance and she is falling down on her face and she is weeping she is wondering is God faithful is God for me is he is he does he care for me and in that moment the angel of the lord appears to come presently he says fear not fear not This is one of those, those moments where Hagar must have felt like she was dreaming. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. The boy must have been crying out himself. Heard the voice of the boy. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast. In other words, don't lose hope. Go grasp your son Take him by the hand and bring him to this well, this was pointed out. Was there? She couldn't see, but her eyes were open to see this world well drawn. And she went, and she filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. But maybe the most powerful word that we read in this text is this: "And, the, and God was with the boy." This is God fundamental to God's mercy that he's there in the midst of their sorrow and their suffering he draws near to them and he himself is the one holding them in his arms, that providential care and mercy that he shows despite him not being a child of God but he was promised, he was promised that he would be the, 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 the father of princes, that he would be a great nation and we see a little glimpse of this As they lived in the wilderness and he became an expert in the bow, he grew up to be a a leader of God. God blessed him in this. Now, what does this tender mercy that we see here mean for us? I think one of the things that we see is that God's tender mercy is for all people. Not His particular mercy, not His saving grace necessarily, but that He cares for all peoples everywhere, that He indeed cares for the lost. He cares for those who are suffering all around the world. And so what does that mean for us? I think there's a pretty clear point here that we ought to have care and concern for the world around us and those who suffer. Just as the Lord came alongside Ishmael. Not only that, not only do we see that mercy and care in a general sense, how God loves all of his creatures, but we also see that he has a particular care, particular care for his people and for those whom they go and bless. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that we have a call. I think our call is to go into all the world and make disciples and so one of those things is as we go we're blessing the world and so as we go and we talk to our neighbor about Christ and we share the love of Christ with them and we we care for them and are merciful to them God has a particular care for that person every person you come in contact with that gives us a call there's a call for us to go but I think there's something else going on here if you will just a minute God chose Abraham, called him, and promised to make him into a great nation through Isaac, the chosen seed. But do you remember what else that promise was? That promise was that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Even as we see God mercifully caring for Ishmael, we can then look forward in hope to that glorious time of Christ, when He come, when He came, they can look forward and see how God opened up His mercy to the nations, and that includes you and me. Right? You know, Ishmael, or Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, we go into Israel as a particular people, and not just any particular people, but this, but eventually gets narrowed down to Judah, and really, really, this narrow subset of people. Are they it? God says, no, they are are the ones through whom the whole world is going to be lost. So we come to the cross. Again, we have this beautiful picture here. The Lord Jesus identifies himself with those who are broken, those who are far off, those who were outside the camp, those who were his enemies, those who had no right to approach him, just as Ishmael had no right to approach him. And the Lord identifies himself with us. Him. And in his mercy, he goes off into the wilderness. He suffers. He dies, That you and I may enjoy your inheritance. He is faithful to his promises. and merciful to us. Though our sins there this is what's